You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The text for this morning's sermon is Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I've been looking forward to this for the last couple of weeks, ever since Jason sent me an email and asked me if I would come. I've been wanting to come and see you all. I know Jason Redberg. I know Aaron White, Connor Kennedy. I got Levi right here in the front row. You guys are full of people I know, and I wanted to see the church family that produced and supported people like this, so it's so good to see you. Uh, I, I don't say this with any bit of flattery or overstatement, but we are so grateful for the way you have supported us, even if it's only through sending up your pastors to preach in chapel at Bethlehem College and Seminary. They have ministered to us so profoundly, so we thank you for sending them up. Thank you for the ministry that you represent here. Thanks for supporting our college and seminary. But if I'm going to be honest with you, the thing I've been looking forward to the most is coming up here and preaching my favorite psalm. So make sure your Bibles are open to Psalm 63. A couple of summers ago, the Compton family, that's my last name, the Compton family, we took a big trip. We've been saving up airline miles for like five years, and we went over to Europe to see a bunch of our old friends and to visit six countries, including the world's smallest. Which one is that, kiddos? World's smallest country. Say it out loud. Or adults. You're like, sin boldly, congregation. What is it? Vatican. I see a little murmur. Okay, we went to Vatican City. We went to a bunch of countries. Kids, mark that away for jeopardy someday. Tons of highlights while we went on this trip, as you can imagine. 
but one of the highest of highlights was the time that we spent uh, reflecting on, memorizing, and talking about this psalm. We kind of took it with us to Europe, and everybody memorized it, some of us faster than the others. My daughter would want me to say she was first, so we memorized it. Now, I don't do everything right, dads, as a dad, okay? I'll be the first to admit that. I do a lot of things that are, uh, I aspire to be a better dad, but this was one of my bright spots as a dad, was leading us as a family through memorizing this little psalm. And then on the trip, not every night, but some nights, often, kind of in every country, we, we would sit and reflect together on it. And throughout the trip, as we slowly did that, Uh, we were noticeably refreshed, noticeably refreshed, all five of us, as we just sort of reflected on God as a family in a faraway place, we, our spirits were refreshed. And I think, I think that's why Psalm 63 is in the Bible. I think that's its job. You say, what's Psalm 63 doing in my Psalter? It's meant to refresh you. That's what it's trying to do in the Bible. I kind of hope that's the effect it has on you today. I want this psalm to refresh us. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at this psalm that was just read. I'm going to trust you were listening, and I don't need to read it again. So we just read it. Here's what I'd like us to do. I want us to see afresh from this psalm where the Bible says the good life is to be found. So the Bible says, it's telling us in this psalm, there's a good life, there's a good way to live. There's a way that you'll really like if you'll pay attention, if you'll incline your ear. There's a good life to be had. And the Bible right here in Psalm 63 refreshes us by saying it's right here. This is it. Pay attention. So I want us to see that afresh from the psalm this morning. There's a way to live. There's a way to be in this world. There's a deep satisfaction that you can have as a human being. And God is, in his goodness is saying, just pay attention. I'm telling you all about it right here. I want us to see that. And I want us to leave with a little bit of, little bit of fresh resolve. So I know it's a little early to be talking about New Year's resolutions, but I wouldn't be unhappy if you left, and we'll get there, with at least one New Year's resolution. Anybody in here make New Year's resolutions anymore? Is that passe? Anybody do it? You're like, I'm not even thinking about that right now. I'm still trying to get through finals or whatever. All right. Well, I'm going to leave you with one of those. So I want us to see what does the Bible say the good life is. I want us to leave kind of freshly as a church committing. All right. That's the life I'm going to pursue with the strength that God gives me. So here's how we'll do it. If you're taking notes, I want us to make our way briefly back through this psalm. Think of the psalm like a house. And in kiddos, if you're in here and you're inclined to do this sort of thing, you may want to draw a little house. Think of the psalm like a house that you return to at night. And when you return to your house at night, what do you do? You go through the house and you, well, at least I do, maybe watching too many scary movies as a kid, but I flip on the lights. I turn the lights on. So we're going to pretend, we're going to think about this psalm like it's a house that you're returning to at night, and we're just going to walk back through the psalm and turn the lights on so we can see in each room. So kiddos, if you wanted to, you could draw a little house, maybe put three rooms in it, and listen, if you do that, and it's good, not if it's bad. 
But if it's a good drawing, I'm going to be up here after the service. I would love to see it. If you're going to draw a good drawing, I want to see what you got. So a house with three rooms. So I want us to turn the lights on. And then second, once we do that, I just want to draw three simple lessons from the psalm for our lives today. So that's where we're going. We'll turn on all the lights, and then we'll draw some lessons. So, Lord, we need your help. Here we are. We've just read... I don't know if it's okay to say this, but we've just read one of the best. Maybe it's the best, but they're all good. One of the best psalms that you've given us. It is so full of goodness that we don't want to spill any of it. Like we got a big barrel full of water and we don't want to slosh out any of it. So give me grace to faithfully show and tell all the good that we find in this part of your word. You are a faithful God and a generous God. You faithfully speak and you generously give. So we want to be recipients of both of those today. Would you open our eyes so that we behold the wonders that are here? We need you for that. Our our lives depend on you for that. So as you do each week for your people, would you meet us and give us precisely what we need? In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's turn on the lights of the psalm. So if you got your Bibles, hope they're open on your laps or in your hand with your, your phone. Turn on the lights. The psalm, as I said, has three rooms. So let's look at room number one. We'll turn on all the lights, then we'll draw some lessons. So three rooms. Room number one, verse one. Room number one, verse one. And here's how I'm going to summarize it. Kiddos, you could write this in the room, just so you know what room it is. Not brother's room, sister's room, dad and mom's room, but you could write these statements. Here's the first. Room one, verse one. Here we see David's greatest need. Room one, verse one, summarized. Here we see David's greatest need. In our Bibles, there's a short title before verse one that says this. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Do you see that in your Bibles? Hopefully you've got it. It's called a superscription, sometimes written in kind of cool letters. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. The Psalms are full of titles like this. Some of us tell us, well, who wrote the Psalm? Others of them tell us, when was the Psalm written? Not every Psalm has them, but a lot of them do. Well, this title in Psalm 63 tells us that David wrote this Psalm says that's who wrote it, and it tells us when he wrote it. He wrote it when he was in the desert. That's what wilderness means. He's in the desert. He's away from all the nice, comfort, comfortable places. He's in the desert. And you say, that doesn't sound like a very nice place. It wasn't. And not only was it not very nice, but he's far from home. He's far from his home in Jerusalem. And he's there. Look at what verse 9 tells us. David, why are you there? He tells us because people, look at verse 9, People were seeking to destroy his life. And it's worse than that. From what we know about this time in David's life, you know who was seeking his life? It was none other than his own son, Absalom. There was a little mutiny, a little coup attempted, led by, which would crush a dad's heart, led by his own boy. You can read about this in 2 Samuel. So, So friends, David's not in a particularly comfortable spot and he's got a lot of needs. 
Like he needs some food and water. Not a lot of that in the desert, in the wilderness. He needs safety. He's on the run. And there's an army that's sort of mobilizing to come and seek him out. He needs to get back home. He needs to get back to work. And he needs to repair a desperately broken relationship. Think about that. He needs food, safety. He's homeless. He's unemployed. And he's estranged from people he loves. I'm just curious, does that match any of your circumstances this morning? You've got needs, real needs. You've got pressures. You feel like things aren't safe, and that could be from any number of causes. Maybe you're not homeless, but you're struggling to pay rent or to take care of the place you're in. Maybe you are unemployed. Maybe you're seeking work. Maybe you're underemployed. And I suspect a lot of us, we've got relationships that are strained, don't we? Maybe you are estranged from a son or a daughter or from a mom or dad. David had a lot of needs. We've got a lot of needs. But he tells us, I think this is, you can't miss this. He tells us these aren't his greatest needs, which is kind of interesting. He's in the desert. And his mind doesn't go to food and water, safety, reconciling with Absalom. His mind goes to the one thing he needs above everything else. So not too long ago, I had a chance to watch Unbroken. Have you seen this, Unbroken? Maybe you read Laura Hillenbrand's book uh, of the same title. Maybe you should watch it over the holidays. I think it's a pastoral-approved movie. All right. You have to talk to Aaron afterwards. It's the inspiring story of Louis Zamperini. So he was a one-time Olympic athlete, and then he was a WW2 airman, and then he was a prisoner of war. And the movie kind of stops before detailing this point, but he also became in later life a vibrant Christian. Kind of a beautiful story. Well, at one point in the movie, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert. Okay, I'm going to keep it as vague as I can. You want to plug your ears? I guess that's okay. Louis Zamperini, he's adrift at sea. And there's two other airmen with him, and they're, they're on a raft in the middle of the ocean. And they are sunbaked as sunbaked can be. They're emaciated. They're so hungry, and they're dehydrated. And what I found kind of really alarming, they were surrounded by sharks, just swimming around the perimeter of their little not-so-thick or protective raft. And in the midst of this situation, they start talking about what they missed most about home. Kind of a lovely little conversation in the midst of all of that trouble. They start talking, what what do you guys miss? What can't you wait to get to? That's where their minds go. And Louis, whose parents were old-world Italian, starts describing his mom's gnocchi, potato balls. If you've had good gnocchi, you can understand. There's bad gnocchi, and there's good gnocchi. He starts, that's where Louis' mind went. He starts talking about his mom's cooking. Well, here's David. David's in a bit of a similar spot. He's parched. He's hungry. He's surrounded by danger. He's missing home, and his mind goes to God. Look again at verse 1. Oh, God, you are my God. 
earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Don't, don't miss how David describes his longing for God. He says that his soul thirsts. His flesh, that's his body. His body faints for God. His soul, he can feel in his soul a thirst for God and his body is affected by his sense of absence from God. Did you know that your soul can thirst? It can thirst. Your body actually needs, your physical body actually needs spiritual calories to exist. That's how the Bible puts it when it says, you don't live by, what's it say? Bread alone. You don't live by what you ate for breakfast this morning as good as it was. You have got to be nourished by God as well. You can't live without him. And I think, I'm afraid, that many of us, we kind of go about this world and we're spiritually emaciated, spiritually dehydrated. And the trouble is we don't know it. And, and we're trying all sorts of things to sort of meet that undiagnosed need. We're trying to fill our lives with all kinds of stuff because we feel something is lacking and we can't figure out what it is. And nothing works and nothing will until we realize that it's our soul that is thirsting and what it needs. Friends, what your soul needs more than it needs anything else is God. All right, that's room number one. Room number one, verse one. There we see that David's greatest need, our greatest need, is God. Room number two, this is verses two through eight. Room number two, verses two through eight. Kiddos, you could summarize it this way if you're making a drawing. We see how David satisfied his need. So verse one was, what is David's greatest need? Verses two through eight, how does he go about satisfying it? How is a soul's thirst for God quenched? Well, look at verse two. David tells us, he says, so, this is verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Hear what David is saying. David finds God. He finds God in the place where God revealed himself. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. For David, the place where God revealed himself, above all, was God's sanctuary, God's tent, where God dwelled in ineffable glory above the altar in the holiest place in the tabernacle. And David says, I've, I've seen you there. And the only trouble was that sa sanctuary that David here talks about was in Jerusalem. And David is stuck on the backside of the desert, which is why he says, look at verse 6, why David says, verse 6, I remember you upon my bed. I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Since David isn't in Jerusalem, he can't go to where God has specially revealed himself. So David goes there in his memory. I remember you, David says. I, I would love to go there and see your power and glory afresh once again, but I'm away. I can't do that. So I'm going to think about what I've seen. I'm going to remember on my bed. I'm going to meditate on you, Lord, in the watches of of the night, David had stored up, filled his heart and his mind with knowledge of God. He was like my grandpa. So my grandpa 
born in 1910, and he passed away at the very, I think it was 1999, lived a long and full life. Well, about halfway through grandpa's life, he came to know Jesus. Uh, it's an amazing story. My dad led him to the Lord. And grandpa, when he became a Christian, maybe you've seen this, uh, with adult converts who just are radically transformed, grandpa couldn't get enough of Holy Scripture. I mean, he read his Bible all the time. The trouble was, Grandpa developed a condition called macular degeneration. That's where your eyes go bad. And uh, his Bibles had to get increasingly bigger in font size, to the extent that when we would visit him, when I was a kid, Grandpa had one of those uh, magnifying glasses with a rimmed with lights that you kind of bring over your desk and you can read, you know what I'm talking about, the big one on the arm. And that's how Grandpa would read his Bible until one day the macular degeneration sort of made even that impossible, which was kind of a sad day for Grandpa. But because he had read his Bible so much throughout his adult life and audio tapes that I think my aunt or my dad gave him, he was still able to listen to and meditate on the Bible even though his eyes had grown dim. And I think David is just like that. He had stored up during his time in Jerusalem, during his time as a child, he had stored up revelation from God, memories of God's power, of God's love. And now that he's kind of out in the desert, his mind goes to those things. And notice, it's not just stored up knowledge about how God had revealed himself that feeds David's hungry soul. It was also David's own personal experiences of God that nourish him. Look at verse 7. It's not just he heard a bunch of sermons from the priests in Jerusalem and he was remembering all those sermon series, but he remembers particular experiences he's had with God himself. Look at verse 7. He says, you, talking to the Lord, you have been my help. You see that? Yeah, he remembers how God had revealed himself, but he gets very personal. He remembers specific things God had done in his own life. Like, you, you can imagine David plays the story with Goliath again and again in his mind. That was a pretty cool one. He could click on his memory and think about. Or all the times he eluded King Saul in a wilderness very much like the one he was in. Or the times when he was a kid. And the backside of the Bethlehem Hills up, up there tending sheep and God protected him from bears and lions. David goes to these experiences that he's had with God. And I, th I think a little takeaway we can take from this is I think we ought to record places in our lives where God has met us. Do you ever do this? Maybe a journal. Maybe you kind of keep it as an oral history in your family, but you're, you're telling it. We had a little bit... Uh, we were on a trip a year or so ago, and our, our kids were fascinated as we just pulled a little strand from God's uh, goodness to us as a family and talked about all the cars God had provided for our family from the very beginning. And our kids sat there listening like, oh my goodness, somebody gave you a car for a dollar? We're like, yeah, God did that. Somebody did this and fixed that. And yeah, look what God had, did for mom and dad giving them an idea that God isn't just this God that we read about in a book. He's a living God who loves to work in the lives of his people. Keep track of that stuff. David did. 
What David needed was God, and David found God where God had revealed himself. God had revealed himself in the sanctuary and had revealed himself in David's own life. And if we wonder, David, you kind of ask him, David, did you find what you were looking for? Did God, when you thought of him and remembered, did he satisfy you like you hoped he would? Look at verses 5 and 6 again. These are the hottest of hot spots in this text. I love, love these verses. Verse 5 and 6, David, did God satisfy? Did he, did he do what you thought he would do? David says, verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. Look at the beginning of verse 6. When I remember you. And I think that is a good way to translate it, but I kind of like the way the New Living Translation says it. It puts it like this. You satisfy me, David talking to God, you satisfy me more than the richest feast. That's a lovely way to say it. God, David is telling us, God satisfies us like and more than we're satisfied by the best meal that we could eat. Better than the best gnocchi, which is easy for me to agree with, or sushi, or steak. Certainly better than Thanksgiving turkey. We won't get into that. There in the desert, David's memories of God, they satisfied his soul. In the desert, David found something, wonder of wonders. Look at verse 3. Not only more satisfying than the richest feast, David's kind of searching around. What else shall I compare how satisfied I am? Look at verse 3. David says, your steadfast love, you, God, you satisfy me. What does he say? Better than what? Say it out loud. Better than life. That's a little treasure God wants us to store away here in our hearts. Don't fail to hear what God is saying. Knowing and experiencing God. I think sometimes we just need to say it plainly. It's better than life. It's better than the best foods. David is trying to give us analogies that we can grasp onto. Do you like life, anybody? Yeah, we kind of do. That's a nice thing, isn't it? Do we like to eat good food? Yes. And David is saying, great. Let me teach you something about God. He is more satisfying. He will provide more profound comfort and relief and refreshment than any of these things. And, and lest we think this is like Bible talk, like God satisfies us on some other plane of reality. Yes, those foods are good and God's better, but it's, it's a different kind of better. I would suggest to you that the same satisfaction receptors that are triggered by a good meal are overrun by God himself. I don't think it's a different plane of enjoyment. It's the same and those of you who have walked with the Lord for years, you would agree God and his nearness is more satisfying than the greatest and best experiences we can have in this life. That's what God says to us in Psalm 63, 5 and 6. That's what he says in Psalm 63, verse 3. And I'd submit to you, friends, it's either true or it's not. Hear what I'm saying. Either that is true and you can claim something like that or he's, God's lying to you. And I don't think it's that latter thing. 
God is speaking true words to us. He is telling us where the good life, where, where satisfaction, where joy is to be found. All right, that's room number two. What about room number three? This is verses 9 through 11. Room number three, verses 9 through 11. Here's how you can summarize this room. David warns us. So he tells us in the first room what his greatest need is. Second room, how do you get it? Third room, he warns us. He warns us by telling us that nothing else will satisfy us. He warns you against looking any other place. Notice David calls his enemies liars. Look at the end of verse 11. Right at the end, David calls his enemies liars. He says the mouths of liars will be stopped. Why does David call his enemies this? Dave, listen, here we go. David's enemies, they lie in opposing David. They lie because in opposing David, these enemies, when they oppose David, they are opposing God himself. God's king, God's man. So in opposing David, who's urging us, find your satisfaction in God. They're opposing this guy. The guy who's telling us, find your satisfaction in God. These enemies are saying to any and to all who will listen that there are better ways to live and to be than David's way. They're saying, we, we know, we know better what he is doing, who he is. We want to replace him. We want to do our own thing. And David says, these guys, these enemies, these opponents who aren't acknowledging me as God's king, aren't acknowledging what I say as God's king, that there is indeed one way, one good life to be found. They're opposing David, and thereby they're opposing God. They're opposing David's words, and thereby opposing God's words. They're suggesting these liars are, that there are other ways to live than God's way. That's just not true. It's a lie. Reminds me that when I grew up in Detroit, that's where I grew up. And on the way home from Detroit Metro Airport, which wasn't far from my house, there was this enormous billboard that I loved to see. Um, it was this huge man and uh, super cool, as super cool as you can be. Perfect stubble, cowboy hat, perfect angle, uh, Jeans leaning up against the fence post, a cigarette pressed between his fingers. Who am I describing? That's the Marlboro man. And you look at that guy as a kid and you're like, dude, that dude is so cool. I want to be like that. Now, contrast, that sign doesn't exist anymore. This is in the 90s when you could do stuff like that. Contrast that sign with the more Recent advertisements made not by Marlboro, but by the Surgeon General, which end, the commercial ends, this was on air a little few years ago, they show the real effects of a lifetime of smoking, and the commercial ends not with a super cool Jimmy Dean-like character, but with this little gray raisin of a man, you know the one I'm talking about, on a ventilator, he looks subhuman, and he's gasping for every one of his breaths. Have you seen that one? David's enemies are like that billboard in Detroit, and they're saying, here's the good life. Follow it. This is where the cool folks are. 
This is the life it'll lead to. But what they're really doing is they're false advertising because instead of giving you that, you're going to end up on a ventilator gasping for every breath, wondering why your skin is the color maybe of a smurf. You're blue. You're gray. Look, our world is full. We get stories told to us all the time, and it is full. Our world is. It's full of false advertising. It's telling us again and again, we're catechized by these false narratives. Here's the good life. If you'll just get this or do this, you'll kind of go this way, all of which are outside of God's will. If you'll do this, this is where the life you want is to be had. And David, God, is telling us, he's indemnifying us against claims like that and saying, those guys, if they're not saying what I'm saying, they're lying to you. They're lying to you. They're trying to destroy you. And David doesn't want us to wait until we're on death's doorstep or worse, wishing we had listened to God's voice. All right, that was the last room. All the lights in this house of Psalm 63 are now turned on. Now, three brief lessons for us to consider. Lesson number one. Lesson number one is this. What you need more than anything is God. What you need is exactly what David needed, what every human being needs. Knowing and experiencing God is better than life itself. So thinking about those New Year's resolutions you haven't yet made, I'll just say it. Knowing God is better than getting in shape in the new year. Maybe you just scratch that one out in your notepad or write it as number two. It's better than getting married. Looking around, maybe we got some aspiring grooms or brides. It's better than getting married, as good as marriage is. Connor, let you guys know, we're on our 20th in two weeks. So it's a good thing to be married, but there is something better than being married. It's better than getting good grades. It's better than getting out of rehab or debt or getting your house painted, or your deck stained. Now I'm reading you my list. (laughs) Or a thousand of the other things we want to achieve in 2024. It's better than food. It's better than water. It's better than sleep. It's better than life itself. That's what God's telling us. Right there in verse 3. God is telling you that there is a good life to be had, It's possible to have it, and he's telling you where to find it. Your soul is thirsting, and God will satisfy it. That's the first lesson. God is your greatest need. Second lesson is look for God in the Bible. David looked for God where God had specially revealed himself. You need to look for God. If God satisfies, which he does, where do you find find him? Look for God in the Bible. So a few years back, Sharice, my wife, who does this sort of thing, passed to me a good article that she wanted to influence our family's life. She does a good job of this kind of thing. And the article was titled, You Have More Time for Bible Reading Than You Think. And in it were a handful of infographics about Bible reading drawn from a survey that Crossway Books, the publisher, had taken from 11,000 of their readers. And here's one of the data points 
that kind of stuck out to me. Maybe you've heard something like this before. Did you know, I kind of had to check it, but in just 12 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in a year. Even saying that still feels like that's fast. Even if we round up to 15 minutes, that's still not very much time. That's what their survey said. 12 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in a year. And according to their survey, 59%, so nearly 60% of their readers said, this is now where I'm going to meddle a little bit, said that they had spent at least 30 minutes a day watching TV. I'm not going to say is that true of any of us. That's okay. But they had 30 minutes that they had in their lives not given to sort of the necessities. 28% said they spent at least 30 minutes on Facebook. 11% spent at least 30 minutes on Instagram. And 6% spent it on what was formerly known as Twitter. Now, these things aren't necessarily bad. Although I wouldn't be adverse if evangelicalism took a digital fast in 2024. These things aren't inherently bad. None of these media are inherently sinful, but they're not going to satisfy you like God satisfies you. Don't you see? Can you look at that stuff? Yes. I mean, kids, no. But adults, if you... Yes, there's good to be had. You can see books that people are publishing. That's why I like it. But if you got to choose between your Bible and Netflix or your Bible and ESPN.com or your Bible and Bejeweled, I'm telling you, God is telling you, you won't regret choosing God. You're not going to regret it. You're not going to regret meeting with God instead of that serial TV show. Because only, verse 3 doesn't say, watching Netflix is better than life. It doesn't say, it doesn't say, if it did, your Bible's wrong. Okay? It says, God is better than life. So do whatever it takes to get into this book. Do whatever it takes. So one practical step. I want you to take it this week. I don't think your pastors are going to disapprove of this. This is how I talk to my students and when I pastor. This is how I talk to my church family. Take some time this week to come up with a plan, a place, and a time. Plan, place, time. So when we would do this in my small group, we'd go around the room at the beginning of every year and everybody had to make their confession. What's your plan? What's your place? What's your time? One guy said, I plan to read through the Bible, start to finish, and he was going to use Don Carson's For the Love of God little reading plan. That was his plan, okay? And he told us he was going to read the Bible in the morning before work, 7 to 7.30 a.m. That's how specific he got. And he did it with a cup of coffee at his kitchen table, a place, a plan, a time, and a place. Now listen, if you can be that specific, you will eliminate a lot of the unnecessary obstacles that keep you out of this book. If you can be that specific. 
So if you don't have a plan, a place, or a time, this is what I want you to do on my authority, okay? I'm joking. This week, I want you to come up with one. Be very specific. 6 to 6.30 a.m., let's say, on your couch, uh, and you're going to read, start reading at Genesis, and you're going to read through the Bible. If you need a suggestion, I would buy the Tyndale One-Year Bible. Every day has a reading, January through December 31st, and I would buy the New Living Translation because you can read it. And you get something like that, you make up a plan, come up with a time, come up with a place, and you need to put it in an email and send it to Pastor Aaron or Pastor Jason or Pastor John or Pastor Connor because you need a little accountability, and I can't think of a better accountability than saying, Pastor, this is what I want to do for this new year. Come up with a plan, a place, and a time. God wants to satisfy your soul. Make a plan to meet him where he's revealing him, revealing himself. And when you do, before you read, as simple as this, Lord, you've told me that your love, your presence, your character is better than life itself. I'm about to read. I believe that. Would you show that to me as I read? A little prayer like that. God answers prayers like that. All right. Last lesson, lesson number three. Stop looking to other things to do for you what only God can. Don't do that anymore. Stop looking, expecting other things, squeezing other things to give you what only God can give you. Only God is big enough to fill that hole that you've got, that I've got inside my, my heart. Anyone who claims otherwise to you is lying. And listen, if you're not a Christian, I know that can sound super harsh. Because I'm telling you, the way you're trying to find the good life, you're being lied to. Christians, you are too, but God's Spirit is in us and He helps us combat those lies. If you don't know Jesus, you're being lied to. But think about it like this. If you're not a believer, there's a road you're on and you're about to cross over a bridge and the bridge is out. Like if you drive on it, you'll plunge and you'll die. And I know about it. I know the bridge is out. You're going to die. If I don't stand in the middle of traffic and wave my arms as frenetically as I can and say, you don't want to go down this road. That's not me being mean, is it? That's me loving you. And if I don't do that, I'm criminally negligent, aren't I? Because I knew danger was ahead of you, and I didn't say anything. So if you don't know Jesus, I'm not try trying to be harsh with you, but there is only one way that God-sized hole in your heart is going to be filled. And the path you're on now isn't going to work for you. And God wants your attention. He's trying to get your attention. And in his kindness, he gave you Psalm 63, but it was even better than that. In his kindness, he sent the Lord Jesus, our Savior. He sent him into this world, he tells us, because he loves us. He gave to you what was most precious to him. He couldn't have given you a better gift than the one he gave you, the one we're celebrating here at Advent season, he sent his most precious son to take away your sin so that if you confess, Lord, I believe that your sins, which separate you from God, can be forgiven. God did that. That's amazing. He gave you a gift, and he wants you to receive it. He wants you to say, Lord, I want that. He has shown you 
by his giving of Jesus, how wonderfully good he is. That's a giant proof of his love for us. And so I'm just encouraging you today, if you're not following the Lord, if you're not seeking satisfaction in God alone, if you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, confess your sins today. Trust in the Lord and join the millions of us who for the past two millennia and more have been able to read verse 1 and say, Oh God, you are indeed my God. All right, let me end with this. What we need most of all in this life and the next is God himself. He's our best and our highest good. He's what our souls thirst for. So let Psalm 63 play its job in your life by reminding you where the good life is to be found. Let it be an anchor for you when the winds of this world and the narratives that swirl around us try to get our attention off our best and highest good. Do it for God's glory. Do it for your ultimate and eternal good. Lord,